0: We're going to be continuing uh, in our study of James tonight. It's my pleasure to uh, get to be with you, if you will, continue to keep uh, Wes in your prayers as he's recovering from illness this week, but he seems to be uh, coming up from it a little bit today. So if you'll continue uh, to keep him in your prayers, but we'll continue our study in chapter five uh, tonight. And so many of you know, I have a three-year-old son and he is struggling with haircuts at the moment. Um, It's a phase of life in our house. He's very, very scared of getting his hair cut. And so last night, you know, our parenting solution was, okay, let's let him cut my hair, okay, so uh, I don't know if this was a stroke of brilliance on our part or just really a low-risk endeavor because I kind of buzz my hair anyway, so uh, at the end of the day, I mean, what really could go wrong if he plays around uh, with my hair? And so we did this and, and things were going well and he was buzzing the back and everything was going good. And then he turned to Carissa and said, so when do I get to use the scissors, right? Uh, And and that's the moment, right? That's the moment where the video gets turned off. That's the moment where uh, I start to squirm a little bit. And it's kind of how I feel every time I read uh, the book of James. And what I mean by that is you'll be reading along and you feel like, okay, everything is good. James is encouraging. And then he gets to something in which you're like, okay, okay that made me squirm a little bit. Or, hey, James, I was jiving with you then. Uh, You weren't stepping on my toes, but today in in this part, now you are. Uh, And I feel like almost that's the entire book of James. It's amazing. You know, one of the icebreakers at youth retreats is often, hey, you know, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And so many times the book of the Bible answered is James. And every time in the back of my mind, I'm going, well, they've never read (laughs) the book of James, right? It's just not that pleasant to me. It's practical. It's something we should apply. But over and over, uh, it hits us in difficult places. So we'll continue uh, reading starting here in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. All right, that's our text for tonight. (laughs) Uplifting text indeed. Um, but in some ways, you know, it's really easy to think that that's talking about uh, somebody else but me, and if you want to get in the strictest sense, you know, it's probably fair to say that this particular part of uh, James's sermon, this letter that he's presenting, is speaking about the outside world, Uh, but where Wes is going to be next week is the pivot, is the pivot back to those who are in the community of faith. And so as we look at this, as we look at those in the outside world who might fit this description, just know that there is a pivot back uh, that's coming that we'll be looking at uh, next week. And so this is really setting up uh, for the end of chapter 5 and the message he has to the people of faith. So we're just going to walk through uh, this text together tonight, beginning with this first verse, right? This now listen, right? He's he's getting the people's attention again as if they haven't been listening before, right? He's, he's reasserting uh, the importance of what he's about to say. And we, we hear uh, this weep and wail, and, and maybe it brings us back to, okay, this is some, some harsh language, but uh, for his audience, you know, this might have brought uh, them back to the prophets, right? This might have, you know, brought inside them some type of prophetic feel uh, about what James is about to say. And so before we look at, you know, what he is going to be telling them in specific in this section, let's review just a little bit uh, to look at some of the other passages that you all have been studying uh, that really connect to this one. And the first is in chapter one of James. This is the first kind of uh, economic theme that uh, that James touches on, and it comes Uh, in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. Believers in humble circumstance, you ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business, right? One of the things that James is focusing on, uh, and focusing, you know, the believers here is you're to be people of attention, right? You're to be people who are purposeful and purposeful in kingdom work. If you just get caught up in the ways of the world, you too uh, will miss the point. But but what he's beginning to tell us here is that wealth doesn't last, right? This is not something uh, that you can bank on. Wealth will pass away, and the rich too uh, will pass away uh, like a flower. And so then in chapter 2, he re-echoes some of this uh, theme about uh, the way that our wealth can affect us. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into a meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers." forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker, right? Another tough uh, message about not allowing our focus uh, to shift to the wrong things. Wealth can lead uh, to self-focus. And I think it would be fair to say that James would go further and say, uh, when you're this focused on self, uh, you've reached a point in which you have become your own idol, right? In which you have become uh, the object of your pursuit of your daily living is all about uh, you. And if we're not careful, wealth uh, can lead us to that uh, self Focus. And the last passage that kind of leads up to ours tonight is from James 4, verses 13 through 16. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go do this, or we'll go to that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why don't you even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life that you are amiss that appears for a little while and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. All right? That's tough, right? Uh, this idea that even if we know uh, what we're supposed to do and we don't do it, that's sin. Uh, and so again, uh, focus is so... Important, And with that focus is the acknowledgement of God, who is the maker of our plans, right? Our human planning uh, is indeed futile if it's not focused on the kingdom. And so we see in some ways all three of these themes, again, echoed here, Uh, in chapter 5. And so I I like the way uh, that Scott McKnight brings this out. He says, James uses the language of rich people very much in the same way that Jesus did. It is code for the oppressors of the messianic community, right? Uh, The way Jesus often used rich people was as an antithetical uh, to those who were his followers or those who were blessed uh, by God. You know, there's a dichotomy that seems to be set up between those who are seeking to rely on themselves, seeking to put themselves, uh, number one, seeking to be the source of their own provision, their own pleasure, their own destiny, uh, versus those who are seeking the kingdom, uh, versus those who are seeking to follow in the way of Jesus. And so we see that uh, this part in chapter four is directed uh, to the church, the part at the end of chapter five there in the middle of chapter five is also directed to the church, uh, but we're supposed to learn something here from 5, 1, and 6 uh, that's addressed to non-Christians, right? This is the part that is supposed to provide that contrast, right? The people of the world do this. And so the people of the church, the people who are the people of faith, they should not do this. And so as we're reading our text, you know, think about, okay, is this something that you do? Or is this a behavior that you've seen want to manifest itself in you? Is this a behavior that somebody might accuse uh, people in the church of? Is this something that somebody even might say, hey, that church is not very different uh, from their neighbors in the way they go about doing business? And so like a prophet uh, with this weep and wail, James is trying to get the attention of the world by encouraging uh, this community of Faith, And so a very similar you know, story that Jesus tells that is, is like this comes from Luke uh, chapter 12. And, and this is a parable that uh, speaks to some of these same themes. And so it begins with someone in the crowd said, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.'" Right? Jesus is being posed uh, with what seems to be a practical question. "'Hey, why don't you just divide it? Divide the inheritance.'" And Jesus replies, "'Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you?' And then he said, "'Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions.' And he told them this parable. "'The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest.' He thought to himself, "'What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops.' And then he said, "'This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones.' And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then what will you get that you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This idea that, hey, I am reliant on myself. Things are going well. I'm just going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. In fact, I'm even going to prepare more uh, for more coming fruits. And again, if you were to say the word, you know, it's like that person is saying self-reliance, self-reliance, self-reliance. I'm going to take care of myself. It's going to be good. uh, And I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, And one of the other blessings of uh, of having a three-year-old at home is you get to go back and watch some movies you haven't watched in a long time. We've been watching Ice Age this week. This is what I think of when I hear this parable. Anybody remember this guy? This guy's running throughout the entire movie looking for this particular acorn, right? He is the definition of focused on something to the point that it overwhelms him, right? Over and over and over. And I didn't know he has a name. His name is Scrat, right? And so when you're thinking of this type of, you know, singular focus, the singular focus that ultimately isn't in your best interest, it looks a lot of like this fictional. Uh, depiction of this squirrel chasing this acorn that ultimately uh, is of no importance uh, to him. And so let's keep reading uh, in our passage here. It says, your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth In the last days, and so, like a prophet too, uh, he's pointing to the last days, right? He's pointing uh, when you know the second coming will happen, when things will be brought into their proper place. The actions of these folks will testify against them, right? This sounds a lot like uh, another teaching uh, from Jesus, Matthew six. 19 through 24, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Right, That's what James is getting at here too. You can see by the treasures, you can see by the pursuit of the treasures where the heart of the world is, where their heart uh, is truly aligned. He goes on to say, "'The eye of the lamp, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness?' No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so over and over in these texts and in these teachings from Jesus, uh, we see money being put opposite uh, of God. And, and, you know, we could have a worthwhile conversation about the fact uh, that wealth in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, right? Um, but this is speaking about the heart. It's speaking about the disposition. Uh, it's speaking about the desire uh, behind the pursuit of wealth. And so when it says here that this is corrosive, uh, right? That, that's gross, right? Some of your versions might even say rust uh, instead of corrosion. But when something corrodes, you know, it takes a while. It's, it, it, it's just kind of You know, just gradual, but ultimately, you know, detrimental. But then it has this kind of interesting comparison here between something that corrodes, which seems to be very slow, uh, and then flesh that burns, uh, which would happen very fast, right? It seems like kind of a weird metaphor, um, but it's helpful if we don't uh, completely take it. Uh, that literally, again, I think McKnight uh, is helpful here. He says, Rust does not eat, and it does not eat like fire, since fire consumes quickly. But James' evocative imagery is spoiled by thinking of it with such uh, narrow literalism. If rust can corrode precious metals like gold and silver, which were sometimes considered non corrodable it will also corrode the very flesh of the rich." And if it can't corrode, it can be extended to consuming things the way that fire does. The language, again, is graphic and designed to evoke a response of repentance, right? This is supposed to be a gross and graphic image, right? Burning flesh, corroding metal, right? These are not uh, pretty things to think about, but this is a warning uh, that's hopefully supposed to kind of shock uh, the, the hearer and to shock the person back Uh, to their heart being in a healthy place. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And so he enters into this next section talking about oppression, talking about when our pursuit of wealth reaches a point in which we're willing to exploit, which we're willing to take someone uh, who's made in the image of God and use them for our own means, right? And, and we might say, hey, I don't do that. Uh, but when you think about it, it doesn't take very long before you start to think about people as a commodity or people as a means to an end. Uh, and this kind of thinking is ultimately uh, very, very dangerous. And so the people that he's speaking to here, uh, he, he gives another very strong Image and depending on your versions, if you look at it, uh, some say the Lord Almighty here. If you have the King James, and I may mess up how to pronounce this, but it says uh, the Lord Saboeth, uh, which means destroyer uh, or the host of heavens. The RSV says the Lord of hosts. Right when this is normally used, uh, it's evoking something uh, that God does militarily or that God does on behalf of His people. One such example comes from 1 Samuel. Uh, 17, verse 45, it says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I have come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And there, you know, the Yahweh of hosts is is the type uh, of phrase that's being used here about the Lord Almighty. And so this idea that people have you know, exploited others for their own gain, God is going to be the one uh, who sets things right. His justice will indeed uh, prevail. And so the rich people pictured here are clearly uh, wealthy landowners. They're a class accused of economic exploitation and oppression from early times. In James's surroundings, we may think particularly of Palestinian Jewish landlords who owned large estates and were often concerned only about how much profit could be gained from their lands, right? We have some parables of Jesus uh, that are similar to this too. In fact, we'll read one uh, here in a minute, right? But this idea of the wealthy landowner uh, who takes advantage of those who work uh, the land, right? This is a theme uh, that is common in Scripture and common really uh, in all periods uh, of history. And so what it's talking about here is not just a blanket uh, kind of class uh, separation. It's not saying that God necessarily despises all people uh, with wealth, but he's despising those uh, who gain wealth in a way uh, that neglects the good of others. God does not have class enemies, but he hates and punishes both oppression and neglect of the poor. And the rich, if we accept the repeated warnings of scripture, are frequently guilty of one or both of these, right? They came uh, to their wealth often by means uh, that were not appropriate. So let's read uh, one of these parables uh, of Jesus. And so this is the parable uh, from Matthew chapter 20 that speaks of uh, the way that God views uh, treating the worker. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing he told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went and he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon. And he did the same thing about five in the afternoon. He went out and he found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and they each received a denarius. And so when they came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, am I, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first, and the first will be last. parable we've heard a lot of times, right? Uh parable that uh, we like to quote the last, time, the last line, right? Uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, it's hard to really think what that last line looks like in practice. And, and kind of from our, you know, American outlook, a lot of times when we read this, uh, we tend to think of the people who were chose first, um, you know, as, as being good, and hardworking folks um, and the people who are chose last that hadn't been chosen, uh, they're just lazy, right? Uh, but oftentimes there could have been a reason that they weren't chose first, right? We don't know. It could have been some type of um, you know, exploitation from that beginning. Maybe they were from uh, a different people group. Maybe they weren't you know, as physically capable uh, of working, right? We don't know all the details, but we tend to just assume laziness, right? We tend to assume uh, that they didn't want to get hired. But indeed, they say the reason we're not working is because no one uh, has hired us. And so, you know, this type of thinking is so countercultural to the type of thinking in the world around us. So let's keep going. We've got two verses uh, left here tonight. It says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves." in the day of slaughter, right? This is this is a hard verse uh, to think about, you know? Nobody thinks of themselves uh, as living in luxury, right? Nobody thinks of themselves as being uh, self-indulgent most of the time. Uh, but typically, if you were to ask somebody or if you were to ask me, I could rattle off some names of people I thought were living in luxury or people I thought were self-indulgent, right? It's not hard to do that, right? We can see the things in others easier than sometimes Uh, We can see things in ourselves. But I encourage you to ask yourself, okay, what ways might I be uh, living in luxury or in uh, self-indulgence? You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Jan Johnson puts it this way. Prosperity is not wrong, but routinely spoiling ourselves is. Getting what we want, whether or not it's wise. No matter how much or little we earn or own, self-indulgence damages our character. I was taken aback by that last line. Self-indulgence damages our character, right? Do we think that the times in which we're being selfish, it's affecting who we are, it's affecting the way that we see the world, it's affecting, uh, you know, our followership of Jesus? Um, You know, I think we like to disconnect uh, different spheres of our lives, and sometimes one of the easiest ones to disconnect uh, is how we use our money. Uh, when we, if we're to listen to the words of Jesus, you know, so much of his teaching is about using our money in a way that's God-honoring, but I think this self-indulgence could be uh, expanded beyond that, right? It could be the way that we treat our bodies. <laughs> I know this is one area that I'm not always the best, right? Uh, I can be self-indulgent uh in areas like that um you know there are other ways in which we can uh you know look out for you know like the example in in, in chapter 2 of James right uh, we all like to have you know the best position in a room or we all like to you know get the best seat if we if we go to a theater or or something like that you know there are ways in which we can indulge uh, and not notice uh the people around us and so Jesus tells us that he wants Uh, that God wants to be our provider. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. And will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we live Uh, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right? We know that God wants to be our provider. We know that God doesn't want us to worry about these things. Uh, but it's an easier thing to say uh, than to do. And I think one of the core ways that we begin you know, doing this in practice, and I'll admit I'm not very good at this, uh, is is taking things to God in prayer uh that recognize that He's our provider, right? If you read the Lord's Prayer, you know, that's one of the roles that He desires to play for us, right? He desires uh to be the provider uh for us uh in daily life. And so let's let's look at our last uh verse together. And and this is one that, you know, kind of may seem to come out of nowhere, right? There's this there's this, you know, admonition to the rich, hey, what you're doing is, is wrong. And then there's these specifics about the fact that, hey, this stuff you've accumulated, hey, it's not going to last. And then there's this part about self-indulgence that we just looked at. And then it seems to escalate to a whole nother level here in verse six. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And we might say, hey, what is this talking about? You know, where did this come from? And there are some people that in looking at this, you know, might believe that, you know, what's happening in this particular church, you know, it's either in a time of direct uh, oppression or uh, they're preparing to go into oppression, you know, depending on, you know, where you date the book of James and and different things. But I think the most likely reading is this is speaking about Jesus, right? This is speaking about that innocent one uh, that they condemned uh, and murdered who was not opposing them. And it's like, well, okay, how did we get from uh, these rich people? How did we get from self-indulgence? How did we get from those things to murdering Jesus, right? It seems like uh, this this big jump, but, but really when we think about it, uh, it's not. I mean, we could even think about it uh, in that very story, right? We see the people of power Uh, the people who we know were potentially exploitive uh, in the way that they got their power, right? They were, you know, pitted directly against... Uh, Jesus, whether that's Pilate, whether that's Herod, uh, whether that's the Sanhedrin, you know, whoever is, you know, kind of contrasted with Jesus here, uh, you know, in his final days, if we're getting specific, you know, they were the people of power uh, who were accusing Jesus of seeking power, right? He's running around telling everybody not to pay taxes. They're calling him a king. Hey, he wants your authority. Hey, he wants to be in charge, you know, they're, they're pitting the two power structures against each other, the power structure of Jesus and the power structure of the world, right? They're two opposing forces uh, in that sense and also in the other sense, right? The sense that, hey, you can either live uh, by the worldview of the world, right? You can put yourself number one or you can put Jesus number one. And when you put yourself number one, there's no way to be aligned with Jesus, right? And that's hard. Uh, that's hard when we think about it that way. And so when we see this big jump here uh, in 6, and I kind of hate that we're stopping at 6 because 6 really feeds into what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter, but uh, Wes is going to pick up here next week and uh, and kind of put a bow on what we've been going through tonight. But really, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 are a setup uh, to what you're going Uh, to be looking at next week. So thank you so much uh, for being with us. I'm going to offer a prayer and uh, we'll be finished for this evening. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to spend uh, time in your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, these letters that were preserved for us, like James, that uh, even though they can step on our toes sometimes are uh, are good for us and and we need them and they help us uh, draw closer uh, to you. We ask that we're people who have a receptive heart, Uh, and that we seek to uh, follow the Jesus way. It's your name that we pray. Amen.